0: Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest from the state capitol, Gambling Addiction Awareness Month, an in-depth look at COVID after one year, and the coronavirus's impact on mental health. But first... It was a busy first week of the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis with jury selection underway. The big news late in the week. With regard to the state's motion to reinstate, the court is going to grant the motion. To reinstate. Judge Peter Cahill made his decision to reinstate third-degree murder charges against former Officer Chauvin. The Minnesota Supreme Court on Wednesday denied the defense's request for a review of a third-degree murder charge. That was in response to a previous decision by the Minnesota Appeals Court. Cahill heard arguments from both sides before issuing his decision. The state had been pushing for the charge to be reinstated. The defense argued that the Chauvin case is different from the Muhammad Noor case, which set precedent. As the trial began Monday, hundreds of protesters gathered in downtown Minneapolis to call for justice for George Floyd, including Anika Bui from the Minneapolis NAACP. You are fighting against a system that has
1: attorneys. You are fighting against a system that has a constitution that was not designed and had us in mind.
0: George Floyd's sister Bridget called for an end to violence and remembered her brother as a man who loved his family and especially loved his daughter. And we
1: would never get that back. I want you guys to continue to pray for our family because
0: we need it. We need it. In the courtroom, prospective jurors were grilled by attorneys on both sides about whether or not they could serve and be impartial.
2: What you wrote in your questionnaire, and I understand I'm not trying to trick you, but what you wrote in yeah. your, what your questionnaire is that they took the law into their own hands.
1: Well, yeah, if a guy's you know, sitting there telling you he can't breathe, and uh, you decide, I mean, a man ultimately lost his life that day. There's undoubtedly more information that I don't have so I'm not in a position to judge and a lot of relevant information not just whatever I think without knowing all the facts it's it's impossible to say well that one was right and that one was wrong
2: vandalism of, of the city and you know seeing the letters BLM um, whether that organization did it or not you know it was kind of hard not to not see those So, not accusing that organization of actually doing it, but
0: it was hard not to see those letters. Jury selection is expected to continue with opening statements in the trial set for March 29th. MNN will have continuing coverage of the trial in the days and weeks ahead. Now, switching gears a bit, COVID 19 and the George Floyd officer trials figured prominently again this week at the Minnesota Legislature. MNN's Bill Werner has a recap for us.
3: Scott, Governor Tim Walz announced more Minnesotans are eligible for the COVID vaccine, including more people with underlying medical conditions, also food processing workers and essential frontline workers. And the governor says everyone else in Minnesota could be eligible for the vaccine, potentially by mid-April.
2: A little bit of patience and the federal government's ability to ramp us up more. We'll get this even done faster. Um, And the next time I'm here to announce the next lane that's in is basically the rest the rest of Minnesota. That's how close we are.
3: House Republican Minority Leader Kurt Dowd said with the governor apparently ready to allow some fans again at Target Field.
0: If it's good for the twins, then it's good for everybody else. So um, we can't just allow one thing to reopen. Uh, We have to make sure that we've got a a fair system for,
2: for all of the businesses.
3: But the governor says caution over COVID variants is warranted because he says the numbers are scary.
2: We had a goal line stand to protect everything in December and then we got the ball back. We're there. We're not fumbling this thing as we're going into score. We're not giving up. We're not letting the virus back
3: up. Meanwhile, House Republicans tried again this week to cancel the governor's COVID emergency powers. The Democratic majority again saying no. Republican Eric Lucero from Dayton says, Walls. When he can days in advance say, I'm going to announce today that I'm going to make an announcement several days from now about modifications to my unilateral edicts, that in and of itself demonstrates the lack of emergency when he has that luxury. House Democratic Majority Leader Ryan Winkler responded. We have a bill moving that addresses the business owner concerns. This is a continuing crisis. It is getting better businesses would not have to pay state tax on forgivable COVID loans that they received from the Federal Paycheck Protection Program. Under a bill that the Republican-controlled Minnesota Senate passed this week, Duluth Democrat Jennifer McEwen says individuals should also be exempted from paying state income tax on their COVID unemployment benefits otherwise.
4: Barely making ends meet and now they will find themselves in a situation where they're going to be stuck with a tax bill.
3: But some senators expressing concern about the $200-plus hundred plus additional price tag. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says he hopes that issue will be addressed in another tax bill, but he says the tax exemption for businesses must happen now because of the looming tax deadline. April 15th is a lot farther away than March 15th. A portion of unemployment benefits is exempted from state income tax in the Senate's bill, but it will face a tough time in the House where top Democrats say it should be the full amount. The governor's proposal to increase taxes on the wealthiest Minnesotans got a thumbs down by a wide margin this week. During debate on another bill in the Republican-controlled state Senate, Rochester Senator Carla Nelson asked what would it do to Minnesota's tax ranking.
1: Where would we be? Would we be the highest taxed?
3: St. Paul Democrat Aaron Murphy responded.
1: I know that it is important for some to understand where we sit on a list in terms of how much money we raise in revenue.
4: But I am much more interested in the quality of life for the people of Minnesota
3: As the trial of ex-officer Derek Chauvin began this week with jury selection, the Republican-controlled Minnesota Senate passed a bill that would give the governor just over half of the $35 million that he wants for public safety during the George Floyd officer trials. But that measure does not include police reforms, which some Democrats demand, and so faces an uncertain future in the Minnesota House. Senate Republican Majority Leader Gazelka says those funds are needed for public safety. $20 million to help do that in Minneapolis, but frankly, along the pipeline and Bemidji, Wadena, wherever, there are riots. But Minneapolis Senator Omar Fateh responds the bill is the opposite of reform.
5: This account is uh, an example of more police brutality begetting more police spending in a vicious cycle with no good outcome. No prospect of a brighter future.
3: Laverne Republican Bill Weber says about George Floyd's death. I don't believe there's anyone in this chamber that
2: condones what happened. But there were many different decisions that could have been made to keep the aftermath from being what it was.
1: What this bill does, is says, we're giving you money, do whatever you want. We don't want to know because we don't care to know.
3: Minneapolis Democrat Patricia Torres-Rey Tougher penalties, no parole for attempted first-degree murder of an officer, judge, prosecutor, or corrections officer. That under a bill moving toward a vote in the full Minnesota Senate after clearing a key committee this week. It's named after Waseca officer Eric Matson, who was shot in the head by a suspect over a year ago.
2: Every day since the incident, I find out new stuff that I can't do anymore, such as walking on my own or walking really any, any distance.
1: There's never going to be enough justice, but this is at least a start. These criminals need to be held accountable and not have an option for parole.
3: Committee Chair Warren Limmer said to Officer Matson and his wife, Megan.
1: Many of us will be praying for your continued recovery, and we thank you again for your service.
0: Scott. Thank you, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. Minnesota Rural
1: Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal. Provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Bringing power to the people of Minnesota.
2: Ranger Station.
5: Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting in the forest. Uh-huh. One second, I'm having a smoke. Next thing I know, I'm face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Wow. And he told me it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. Did
2: you know nine
3: out of ten wildfires are caused by humans? I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous, and you're
2: not. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. March is Problem Gambling Awareness Month, and I recently spoke with Susan Sheridan-Tucker of the North Star Problem Gambling Alliance on how many Minnesotans are impacted by this addiction and what resources are available to help.
1: Approximately 220,000 Minnesotans fall somewhere on what we call the problem gambling spectrum meaning that they're showing some signs of problematic behavior up through addiction. Um, Typically, the statistics are that 1% to 2% of um, the general population um, does have a gambling disorder, a gambling addiction. So for Minnesotans, that would be about 56,000 people.
0: And what sorts of uh, criteria are there basically to to consider a person to have a gambling problem? What, how do we gauge that?
1: So um, there is the, uh, the the DSM, which has diagnosed gambling disorder um, basically as a peer addiction to alcohol and drug drug use, and there are nine um, criteria that they use in terms of diagnosing an individual. Um, and, and so um, there's a series of questions that uh, people are asked, and uh, based on that score, if um, they score an eight or above um, on the screening, then they're considered to have a, a gambling addiction. Anything lower than that is um, considered problematic behavior.
0: And what are some of the telltale warning signs of a person who might be struggling with a gambling, gambling addiction issue?
1: So it's, it's somebody who um, starts to become uh, preoccupied with gambling, that, that, that's really starting to fill, fill their thoughts. Um, that they're building a tolerance um, in, in their gambling habit so that uh, they may be increasing the, the levels of money that they're wagering. Um, they're choosing to escape from reality, a sense, you know, that, this, uh, that their gambling enables them to um, put a temporary salve on maybe depression or their anxiety or their loneliness people will often try to um, what we call chase their losses so um, that they think um, you know I, I, I'm down this much but I'm sure I'm sure within the next you know round or two I'm going to be able to get back what I've lost um, a lot of lying starts to occur um, gamblers are notorious um, manipulators and um, And uh, because there are no outward signs of addiction, um, a gambler can go on for a pretty long time by deceiving their family and friends uh, to their addiction. Um, And then, you know, we see lots of broken relationships um, as people become more, um, you know, preoccupied with their gambling
0: And Susan, in terms of resources that are available to Minnesotans to take that first step towards help, where would you direct them?
1: So in Minnesota, there is a problem gambling state fund, which offers um, reimbursement for counseling. Um, So if you call 1-800-333-4673, you can be connected to an approved counselor, and um, uh, so services are at no cost, typically, uh, for somebody seeking gambling um, counseling, and and then up to 12 hours of sessions are available to family members as well.
0: Uh, very useful information, Susan, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you wanted to add this afternoon?
1: I would just say um, that Um, in some of the surveys we've done around the state, that there is this perception that gambling addiction is a moral failing or a lack of willpower. And I'm here to say that that is absolutely not the case. No one chooses to be addicted, and this is an addiction. And so Um, There needs to be um, a sense of empathy uh, towards individuals that exhibit and um, show that they have a gambling addiction. we would go a whole lot more further along if um, we showed a little bit more empathy around this
0: issue. Thanks again to my guest, Susan Sheridan Tucker, with the North Star Problem Gambling Alliance. And if you're looking for more information on gambling addiction, you can visit their website at northstarpg.org. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Last week marked the one-year anniversary of the first COVID-19 patient to be admitted into the M Health Fairview Bethesda Hospital in St. Paul. That facility quickly began admitting only COVID patients for the next seven months. MNN's Mike Grimm spoke with that health system's chief well-being officer, Dr. Brian Williams, who talks about a bittersweet past year. It's been a privilege to take
5: care of COVID and to do the job that we did for the state. Uh, I know this applies to all healthcare systems, but us in particular, having cared for about a thousand patients through the last year in the hospital systems, um, happy to do that for the state. I won't say that it was easy though. Uh, it took its toll. We worked really hard on uh, taking care of our folks through that process. And I really appreciate all the public support uh, and and help that we had to do that. Um, but it it is... Uh, Interesting that it went by so fast. That one year has had a lot of uh, moments of reflection. We learned a lot in the process. Uh, We learned a lot about who we are. And um, I will say we've come through the other side and looking forward to this wrapping up sometime soon.
2: Uh, and in regard to you mentioned the, the, the treatment it, and and things are getting better, but from a perspective of the thousands of healthcare workers, uh, not just in, in your facility but across the state and really across the world that have been tackling this now for a year or more than a year in some cases, um, the, the mental. Uh, stress that that has put on all of you and your colleagues. Can you can you talk us through that a little bit and 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 how are or how is everybody dealing with it? I suppose everyone deals with it in their own unique way.
5: I think it's safe to say that
2: um, you know all the healthcare
5: workers are 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 getting tired. they went through quite a bit. Um, at first, there was an adrenaline push to do this. Not that we were excited and happy to be doing it, but we were proud to do that work and step up and, and use our skills to help people in their time of need. And and with any uh, adrenaline rush, uh, eventually that wears off, right? And, and we got into a state where in the pandemic kept going on and actually got worse, new challenges arose. How to maintain that resilience through the second wave. Um, And as it were, uh, the excitement of helping out uh, from a community standpoint, uh, that slowly faded away. And we found ourselves going into fall and the early winter um, with some new challenges and some new, you know, loss of resilience in some way. So it sort of made us retool how we connected with our folks to keep them going, how we rotated people on and off to keep them
2: going. With your facility, the Bethesda, um, you guys kind of set a tone for and set policy, really, some many of the Mm -hmm. protocols, Mm -hmm. some of the health, uh, uh, the the ways that the treatments were implemented. uh, You guys were kind of a trailblazer. And that, take us through some Mm -hmm. of the things that you guys implemented that then others uh, also uh, used. Uh,
5: we used Bethesda as one of the nation's first uh, COVID-only hospitals. We changed how that facility functioned. Uh, We did that in two weeks. And we did that with a lot of knowledge that the coasts had been sending in about what was going on with COVID. So that was very, very helpful. We cohorted that hospital so that we could consolidate all that precious PPE. If you remember, people said they were running out of ventilators, running out of masks and all that. We did that so we wouldn't run out of that and and we didn't. We had to be a little creative with how we used it, but we didn't. And that was very, very effective. You know, this, the sad truth is a lot of healthcare workers got sick and even died uh, across the country caring for COVID. And nobody in our system did. Nobody died. We had a couple of folks that got sick, but it's, you know, very few of them actually got sick at work. Uh, very, very few actually. Most of our healthcare workers that got sick at home got sick at home like everybody else did. And so we were really, really proud of how well we could take care of our folks. Um, You know, our outcomes were quite good. Our ICU mortality was as low as it got in the country. And I think a part of that was the all hands on deck, the expertise that we brought from both the academic center and some of the care providers out in the community. We were uh, rapidly enrolling patients in clinical trials. Uh, we had a lot of minds invested in how we functioned and took care of these folks and rapidly bringing, you know, discoveries from across the country to bear so that we could provide the best care as well as trailblazing a couple on our own. So uh, really excited for that. And and Bethesda, um, just for clarification, was a it was about a seven-month experiment that has now trans- transitioned over to St. Joe's Hospital where we're continuing to do that same care.
2: Last one for you, Dr. Brian Williams, who's with M Health Fairview's Bethesda Hospital and with the system. You also recently were named the Chief Well-Being Officer. Tell us what that title means and what that role uh, encompasses.
5: Thanks for that. You know, we're really excited to say as a system that well-being is an integral part of how we operate as, as an organization. It is top of mind and it is a critical component to making our workplace 30,000 strong one of the best places to work in, in the country. Healthcare is a very challenging field to be in. It brings a bunch of unique stresses to somebody that works with us and we want to make sure they know and that we're working on things that help make that job as safe, healthy, and enjoyable to work at as possible. Um, and uh, it is my honor to be the first person to do that role for our system, and happy to, to serve our, our group in that capacity, uh, bringing programs and, and ideas to bear that uh, really make the workplace uh, as best as possible for them to
0: thrive in. That's Dr. Brian Williams of M Health Fairview with M&N's Mike Grimm. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd.
4: Wait, but there were only
0: four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. Uh. And we're Fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark.
4: Yeah, we invented it. And
0: we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woo-hoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid, all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars, because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah,
5: and I'm super claustrophobic.
4: Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you. And discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later.
0: Yeah, see you soon.
4: Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting economic recession have negatively affected many people's mental health and created new barriers for people already suffering from mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tasha Radel has more.
4: That's right, Scott. The coronavirus pandemic has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives, left millions unemployed, and led to widespread social isolation. The pandemic has also understandably taken a toll on the nation's mental health. Data shows more than half of adults and many children in the U.S. and right here in Minnesota have reported that their mental health had been negatively impacted due to worry and stress over the coronavirus. Joining me today is Sue Abderholden, Executive Director of NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Sue, let's dive in. I think it's more than safe to say this past year has been a tough one for all of us, and including myself at times. With isolating and social distancing, it's really led uh, to many of us struggling with their physical and emotional well-being. I understand you folks at NAMI are making it easier for people like me, my neighbor, my family, my friends to reach out for help. Can you share with us uh, what NAMI is providing?
6: Yes. Well, I think, you know, especially right now, people might feel, you know, pretty isolated, um, not being able to perhaps go to their, um, you know, kind of uh, drop-in centers or in-person programs. And so we've moved all of our support groups online, so through Zoom. And so we have groups that are for people who live with a mental illness, uh, for people who have anxiety disorders, um, for people who have a spouse uh, or a partner living with a mental illness, parents of children, and then family members of someone who lives with a mental illness. They are all run by the people themselves who've gone through specialized training um, and they're free. And all you have to do is go to our website and sign up um, for for a Zoom link.
4: So I think sometimes there's a, oh, what would I call it? a stigma around mental illness. Uh, kind of making people a little hesitant to reach out for help or seek some of the resources. But this is a good reminder, I guess, for folks that you're not alone. Oh
6: my yes. <laughs> You know, so we have people who are really struggling for the first time, um, frankly, especially some of our um, children and youth. And then we have people who have been living with a mental illness, and this has just, you know, frankly, increased their symptoms um, and made it more difficult. So the calls to our office have increased. Um, The attendance at our classes, we have free classes for people as well, have increased. So I think people are really struggling with their mental health.
4: I know rates of suicide have also increased since the onset of the pandemic. And uh, I got to thinking, you know, just this week, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's bombshell interview with Oprah tackled Meghan's uh, struggles uh, with contemplating suicide. Do you think the Royals' openness surrounding the subject of suicide resonated with people?
6: You know, I certainly hope so. I have to say that some of the comments on social media have been, frankly, um, quite mean, you know, like, what does she have to complain about? And I think what we need to glean from all of this is that it doesn't matter what your status in life is, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your religion, doesn't matter your country, anyone can be struggling with their mental health, and anyone can have suicidal thoughts. And so I think, you know, empathy is what is needed right now and kind of, again, that understanding that this can happen to anyone.
4: Sue, for those struggling uh, with mental illness, is there a good place they can go look for the resources that NAMI offers?
6: Yes, I would encourage people to go to our website, which is simply NAMI, N-A-M-I, and then M-N for Minnesota, .org. And you'll also see our phone numbers and everything right there. Um, but all of the classes, we have different booklets and fact sheets. Um, everything is there to kind of help people through this time.
4: I've been visiting with Sue Abderholden, Executive Director of NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Sue, any final thoughts before we wrap up today?
6: Well, I just want to add that if you think you, someone in your life, a friend, a family member, if you believe that they're struggling with their mental health, please reach in. It's really hard when you're feeling depressed or overly anxious to reach out to others. So please reach in to those that you know are struggling.
4: Again, for more information, you can head to NAMIMN.org. That's namim org. And always remember, you're not alone. Back to you, Scott.
0: Thank you for that, Tasha. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.